is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and today's episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. On today's show, we are remembering Canada at War, in honor of Remembrance Day this November 11th, as we remember those that had fought and lost their lives starting in World War I and onwards. Today, we're going to look at a pair of films, both directed by Paul Gross, that deal with Canada in action. First, we have the World War I film Passchendaele that takes place in 1917, and then Hyena Road that takes place in Afghanistan sometime in the early 2010s. Joining me on this journey is Jesse Harley, one of the co-hosts of Canadian Politics is Boring and Filmmaker. Thank you so much for joining me today, Jesse. How are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for having me, Dakota. It's nice being on your show. Yeah, absolutely. I'm very excited. I, I am a, a big fan of of your show. I, I've told you this before, Duh. and I've, and I've uh, <laughs> you know, I can I can hear it again. That's <laughs> <laughs> gushed a bit to your co-host Reese as well, letting him know that I'm I am a fan of uh, your show as well. So uh, I'm very excited to have you on. Thanks so much. I'm I'm glad to be here. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, now I'm glad to, talk, I'm glad to, to, to bash Canadian cinema as a, one of my favorite hobbies. Honestly. It's <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. I guess you, you're coming from a place where, uh, you could probably do that a little bit better, uh, than me on my soapbox. Oh, well, no, I mean, everyone, everyone can be a critic. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now usually on, on your show, your co-host Reese will, will bring to the table a, a funny or a weird story involving Canadian politics and his attempt to both learn history as someone who is born in Wales and to teach and convince you that our country's history is exciting. Does it feel a bit similar without the added bonus of a reassuring Welsh accent to talk about these stories? Honestly, if you could fake a Welsh accent for me, that would really help uh, the process for me. I, I feel like that it really is what does it for me. Without the, with the Welsh accent, I don't think him and I would even be friends. <laughs> now, as far as uh, I could tell by my uh, listener demographics, I don't think I have any listeners in Wales. So you know what? If I really want to make sure it stays that way, I probably should not do it. <laughs> Right. All right. That's fair. <laughs> um, so we're going to leave this off by by saying that neither of us are, are war experts. So <laughs> we're God, not no. <laughs> going to be talking about this from any sort of uh, formal authority. So if anyone is an expert, uh, I apologize in advance if there are any dates, names, things that either of us get wrong. It was a time of innocence. Do you think maybe I could accompany you to a dance? I don't dance with soldiers. I could lose a uniform. I don't dance with naked soldiers. A time of love. In a heartbeat, I could fall so hard. A time of war. The very ground we are standing on is shifting. Civilization hangs in the balance. All right, so I guess we'll talk about the first movie, Passchendaele, which is about the lives of a troubled veteran, his nurse girlfriend, and a naive boy who intersect first in Alberta and then in Belgium during the bloody World War I battle of Passchendaele. So I remember when this, this movie... Fleshy. Yeah, please. I, I remember when this movie came out, it, was, it seemed like it was being hailed as Canada's answer to Saving Private Ryan or something like that, and I managed to... <laughs> miss seeing it when it first came out but i i did end up catching up with it for this and i'm uh it does it does not really hold up to the the moniker of of saving private ryan oh my god no it's <laughs> and it's fresh in my mind i I, I I rolled out of bed and and plowed through two Canadian war movies before coming on the show so that's it's, <laughs> it's a hell of a way to sp- spend a day i i didn't i don't hate passion dale i don't it's um i'm 
as a Canadian uh, up and coming filmmaker, I'm, 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 you know, I, I'm no one of note, so uh, I don't really feel I have too much of a right to be, you know, poking fun at much more successful filmmakers than I am. Um, but passion, the war scenes in passion deal were fantastic. And that made up for about a half an hour of the movie. And the rest of it was so hard to watch. <laughs> I was quite surprised with how much of this movie did not take place on a battlefield. Right? Yeah. Seriously. And like, okay, I didn't. Okay. So the the text at the very end of the film was about like how, yeah, they took, they took Passchendaele and then three weeks later, the Germans took it back and that was it. Credits. I'm like, what? Hold on. What? What? Why is this an important moment in Canadian history? I don't want. (laughs) <laughs> and if it was so important, why wasn't more of the film about it? Oh God, it was so, it's, it's weird, man. Sorry, but that's just, yeah. <laughs> Maybe we should talk about uh, the plot a little bit before diving into the mood. Okay. I, I, yeah, I have a lot of, I have a lot to say on it. <laughs> yeah, it, it was, it was interesting because, because definitely as far as the plot goes, it, it sort of starts out with this soldier coming back home and you don't really know what exactly is going on with him, Paul Gross, and he seems to have an accusation leveled at him a lot where I believe I, I wrote it down, uh, neurasthenia, am I, you, you watched it more recently than I did, is that how they pronounced it? Oh, right, the, the, the accusation. I mean, that sounds, the accusation of neurasthenia, yeah, I forget what it's yeah. called too, his mental condition, shell shock, basically. Exactly, and They yes. called him a- So it was definitely interesting where like, they, they kept being like, oh, he's got neurasthenia, according to his reports, which means coward. And right, then, yeah. they, like, that was repeated several times. And then it's especially odd, given that we know today that, you know, it's a very real thing and many people went through it. And, you know, now mm-hmm. we know it as post-traumatic stress disorder. But it was just very odd that they decided to lean so heavily into the, this guy is a coward in everyone's eyes. I, I suppose we should... Like, I, I mean, your audience is probably already aware of this, but like, if you haven't seen these films, we're probably going to spoil them. That, yes, that, that, <laughs> is, that is a fair yeah. thing to say, yes. Um, I think yeah. this is a movie that is, what, almost 20 years old now or whenever, 2008. So, so yeah, a little over 10 years now. Uh, if it gets spoiled, I don't think anyone is going to yeah, spill, no, lose any spill milk. <laughs> the, so it's basically a love, like a weird love story where people talk in this poetic type prose um sandwiched with two 20 minute 30 minute like war scenes it's it's weird it's very strange it's very like i like the war scenes they were done very very well but the the middle is like it had nothing to do with passion dale it had, like i don't even think it was a true story with the you know the characters involved in it it was, it was so strange Mm-hmm. And the music was God awful. Oh my God. It was horrible. Oh, the, the music just, it was like a, it was like someone putting a drill and straight into my brain. <laughs> Sorry. Can you tell how I, can you tell how I, I, I how much I enjoyed this film? I, I feel like it's a little <laughs> ambiguous at this point. <laughs> uh, I do. I am curious about the accuracy of the film, at least the war aspects of it. Like at the end where his, his girlfriend's brother is hung up on a cross and they had mentioned that this had happened before. 
And Paul Gross is like, people get thrown around all, you know, that just happens with explosions. He, they didn't put him up. He just shut up like that. And then it happened again to someone he knows again. It, it's something and, that I wasn't able to, to verify if there was any sort of veracity to that claim. Right. But uh, here's the, here's the weird thing that I didn't really. So, okay. I'm, it's, that's unfortunate. That you couldn't find whether or not it was, it was true or not. But the weird thing for me is they talk about it in the movie. They talked about this having happened, someone getting blown up into like as if they're being put up on a cross and as if the enemy is taunting them by taking one of their own and putting them, hanging them up on a cross for all to see. And Paul Gross in the movie, his character uh, says, no, 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 that didn't happen. It didn't actually happen like that. People just get blown around and thrown in all kinds of weird positions. And he just kind of landed like that. The enemy didn't actually do it. And then it happens again at the end of the movie, in, which is bizarre. Yeah. And in, in a way that is uh very clearly staged in a you know I mentioned it before we start recording was basically like a, a final Jesus moment basically. Right. So here's the weird thing to me is are they insinuating that this happened again coincidentally? Uh, someone else that Paul Gross is like no characters no I forget his character's name. Um that is he that he knows gets blown by an explosion into the form of a like being hung up on a cross coincidentally twice in his lifetime because the enemy or did the enemy prop him up? And if the enemy did prop him up to taunt them, why did they let them come and take him down in this weird solemn moment? I really liked that moment. Honestly, it was my favorite part of the film where like they just, everyone stopped fighting. It's like, yeah, here, go take your friend. That's fine. Like that was my favorite part of the entire film. Interesting. That's it. But it was, yeah, yeah. I thought that was, I don't know. I like. I just, I like things that go against the grain like that. And when, you know, so, but that's, that's me. That's what did you think of the ending? That, that was the ending for me actually really kind of took me out of the film because up to that point, oh, wow. there was a fairly realistic battle sequence where, you know, some of the better war movies, they, they really sort of show the horrors and, and don't really shy away from the blood and guts. And even though some of the blood and guts was a little too, bad CGI for me at times. Uh, the, you know, the sudden stopping to take a guy down from a cross and drag him like it's, you know, uh, Jesus carrying a cross through his final days was, was just something that kind of like, uh, just took me out of the moment and didn't really work for me. And I was very confused by what Paul Gross, the director and writer was trying to say about all of this. That's I never even pieced that together with like Jesus drag, dragging his own cross across the desert. That like that was the symbology that this that that's what he was trying to pull. Like, oh my god, what he was trying to have come across. I never picked that up at all. I got the symbology of Jesus like on the cross, but him dragging his friend across the battlefield. I never put the two and two together until you mentioned it just now. It's, it's one of those things where like I can I can understand. I, I I see what inspiration he was pulling from, but I don't see how it connected all together. And that's what sort of lost me. Where it's like, I understand you're doing symbolism, but what does the symbolism mean? Right. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't get it either. Honestly, I, I just liked, like, I liked the idea that a battle stopped so that like, there are rules in battle. Everyone's dying horribly, but there are rules. And then suddenly someone's one of the guys gets, tossed up and hung up and he's still alive and one guy's like just hold on put the whole battle on on hold for a second while i go and get my friend and one of the the generals in the enemy 
camps that were like, yeah, go ahead. Like, I just, I don't know. It was so different that it, it was, to me, <laughs> the most human element of the entire film, if you remove the Jesus element from it. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else seemed so incredibly fake. <laughs> Can we talk about the sex scenes? <laughs> the... <laughs> there was this, the, the first of the two completely unnecessary sex scenes blew my mind. And it was with the two young kids or, you know, whatever young adults, um, who, who start having sex in like on a hospital gurney overlaid with a man talking about shrapnel wounds (laughs) to an audience of people, like going into graphic detail of how people are dying from infections and giant gaping holes in their side of their bodies from shrapnel wounds. This is being narrated over top of two 20 somethings having sex on a hospital gurney with, with happy plunky music. Like what the, what the fuck? What was the point of this scene? And, and the thing is, you're actually missing an important fact is that that was her father, the young girl's father. And I believe it was his doctor's office that they were having sex in. Okay, sure. So, you Let's know, just it, add to the weirdness. It, 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 definitely, it definitely was a bit of a out of nowhere. And like most of the time, you know, when you, you sort of get these types of sex scenes, you figure you're not really going to see very much. It's going to be, you know, a, a kiss and then one person lays down on top of the other one and that's it. And then you see them pulling up their pants later. No, you see some butt in this. Um, you see oh, some yeah. boob in this. Yeah. Butt and boob, all you need. Yeah, <laughs> so it was definitely very odd. That was... I wasn't. I won't. I will not say this is a graphic sex scene. This is not graphic by by any means, but it just no. kind of stood out as being like very out of place. Incredibly out of place, and they were trying to make it comedic, but gross at the same time. It was so strange. It was so so strange. And then the second sex scene, which was just unnecessary, which is Paul Gross' character having sex in the middle of a fucking battlefield war zone, and for way too long, like way too long. There's. <laughs> And then the, finally the camera pans away uh, as, as they're humping in the corner of the screen and then they go off screen and the camera keeps panning to see this, this amazing battlefield being like blown up with like just flashing lights of bombs everywhere in the middle of the night. And it was like, oh, okay, that's kind of cinematic. I kind of like that. It's a nice way to end that scene. And then they cut right back to the sex scene and they keep going. It's just, I'm like, why? Stop. <laughs> oh, sorry. Those are... <laughs> I got all my complaints out at once. There you go. <laughs> well, well, thank you very much. I, it was something that I, I, I wasn't planning on touching on, but I, I'm glad you did uh, because it, it, they, it definitely did really stick out. Yeah. <laughs> but right. I think the, the one of the things that I do sort of want to commend this film for is they did – Paul Gross did pack a lot of, of you know, little history. It, it was easier for me in this one to kind of keep notes, be like, oh, what, what does this mean? What does that mean? And kind of go and look it up afterwards than it was for Hyena Road, something we'll talk about later on. But like mm-hmm. right at the very beginning, you know, there's the the opening title card that talks that talks about how it takes place in 1917 and uh, 600,000 soldiers were, were sent over there and, and 10% of them died and, and all this sort of stuff. So it definitely sort of sets the mood as, as far as what's going on. But then throughout it I, I feel like there was quite a bit of layering of of historical fact that i found really interesting which was interesting 
Um, th- there's one of the characters, one of the majors, who talks about being a South African veteran. And so I was looking up into that, and, and what was that all about? And the South African War was a key event in the military history of Canada. It, w- it was the first time in history that Canada had actually dispatched troops to an overseas war. So that was really interesting um, between the Dutch wow. South Africans uh, and the British South Africans. Uh, so what was like the Boer War. And uh, so the British, you know, called Canada and be like, hey, you know, time to pay back a little bit for us letting you have a country. Uh, come and come and fight our war against the, the Dutch now. Uh, so it was definitely interesting that they, they included that detail because that's something I had no idea about. And, and I definitely am thankful right. that I was able to, to learn about that a little bit. Yeah, that is interesting, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I did appreciate the little tidbits of, of history that they sprinkled throughout the film. I thought that was uh, that was interesting. I'll give it that. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they talked about how it was like the, the first time that, that gas was being used in warfare. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. They did, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just some, some very interesting descriptions of, of Vimy Ridge where, where the battle takes place. Um, and then one little, I think, like tidbit that they kind of threw in there is halfway through the movie when uh, Paul Gross's character, Michael Dunn, is basically re-enlisting to go back over there to protect this young kid. Uh, he uses right. the last name McRae, which is uh, the the name of the, the poet, John McRae, who wrote uh, In Flanders Fields. No way. Oh, cool. So okay. I, I Was ha- that coincidence or do you think they did that on purpose? I have to believe they did it on purpose that, you know, it's a World War One movie using the name McRae. You, you would, you know, you would only think of one thing. Like, I can't think of an example, but like if it was something else where they threw in a last name, you're like, you, this obviously means this. Like, it can't mean anything else. Was Passchendaele anywhere near um, Flanders Fields? Yes, yes, because... Uh, th- this was the the second battle of Ypres in Belgium, which is what this Passchendaele was basically. It was uh, in the Battle of Ypres, so it was the exact same area. Oh wow! Okay, so that can't be a coincidence. Then. Yeah, that's very neat. So I don't think it's yeah. it's it's one of those things where I don't know if he was basically insinuating that he wrote in Flanders Field, um, his character or or what, because it, it seems sort of odd where you would basically use. I don't know, arguably the most famous World War One soldier's name uh, to be something else. So so I don't, I don't know exactly mm. what he meant by this, if it was just a nod or if it was meant to be something different. But I think there has to be some sort of connection with that. Yeah, no, I'd, 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 I would agree with that, honestly. I think that's kind of a neat tidbit of information that you found. I'm quite impressed that you found that. It was just <laughs> one of those things where, like, I remember, uh, you know, uh, I know on your show you, you did recently a Canadian Heritage Moment, uh, those commercials, and I'm pretty sure that there was one about uh, the writing of In Flanders Fields, and that's probably why. That's I, where I, I learned about it was the Canadian Heritage Minutes, yeah. There you go, <laughs> yeah. And so that's probably why I just remember that name sort of stuck out in my head. Uh, and so as soon as he said, that, I was like, McCray, I, I know that name. And so I, of course I looked it up afterwards and, and sure enough, it was who I thought it was. That's very cool, man. I got to give that to you. That's very neat. I like that. <laughs> um, yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's interesting because if we think about, you know, what I remember of Canada or from, you know, being taught in elementary school, I'm, I'm much more familiar from what I can remember of 
Canada being active in World War One than it was in World War Two. I feel like Canada was more of a passive participant in World War Two, even though it was crucial to a lot mm-hmm. of the efforts there. But I do remember being taught that, you know, Canada's big deal was was World War One, and so I appreciate that. You know, we get so many World War Two movies, especially coming out of the U.S. It's nice to sort of right. see where we were at during World War One. Yeah, no kidding. I, I I actually didn't know that we were more prominent in World War One than World War Two, or more prominently. Um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You, <laughs> I can't word very well today. <laughs> uh, my, <clears throat> I was speaking with my stepfather, who was uh, ten years old when World War One happened. Yeah, he's uh, he's eighty eighty eight, turning eighty nine years old. And he was 10 years old in 1917 uh, or maybe not 1917, whenever we could do the math, <laughs> but around world, whenever World War One, he was 10 years old and he was living in the prairies at the time and was would was terrified of bombers like coming in and dropping bombs. And he would see news footage of, of bomber plane bombers and he would have nightmares of it. And one day he was over at a, a friend's of his place and I guess his friend's mother or neighbor, I forget which like was I had just learned about the attack on Pearl Harbor and she just told my stepdad uh Jim the J- the Japanese are attacking and you know a 10 year old boy thinks oh my god the Japanese are attacking Canada right here right now the prairies and so he ran home as fast as he could just ignoring everything on the way as and, and burst into the doors and told his parents to get in the basement. The Japanese are attacking <laughs> and they didn't, they did. They, they actually knew better. They were watching the news and they explained it to him, but they're, this is, this is, you know, that's, <laughs> that's the closest uh, I can come to uh, knowing someone who was around during world war one. And he was perfectly safe in the prairies, but still that's, that's my little, my little tidbit of, of <laughs> my, my family's, Involvement in, in World War One. There you go. Well, Enjoy. I, I, I feel really <laughs> terrible right now, but uh, Pearl Harbor was 1941. Pearl Harbor was 1941? Yes, which was World War Two. Oh. Well, then. <laughs> well, if you think about it, 1920, so that would be 80 years. Yeah, that would make him like a... Uh, Hundred and twenty-three. Mm-hmm. If so, <laughs> right, right, yeah, okay. World War Two, it is. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do the math on that one. No, he couldn't. If he was ten years old in nineteen seventeen, he would be. Yeah, he'd be very, very old. You should have stopped. <laughs> he would. He would be hundred and three now. Hundred and no, he would be a hundred and twenty-three. Yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, still, I, I appreciate that uh, that story. That was well, I, a, that was a I great story. Very foolish. You should have stopped me halfway. Through. <laughs> like at the beginning, all proud telling my my stepfather's story to your your audience, and here I am talking about one of the oldest men alive. <laughs> Just, well, there you go, Jesse Harley, co-producer of Canadian Politics is Boring. Can't do math. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's all good. I, I, I feel like I have a, a somewhat similar family story. 
I don't quite know. I, I don't have as much information as you, but um, my my stepfather's mother, uh, so my, my grandmother, uh, was born in 1912. And, and I do remember, you know, she died several years ago. She, she lived till she was like 102, 103, something like that. Um, and I do remember trying to ask her about that era, but she didn't really remember it. But I just remember... Uh, things were tough. That's basically what I, the gist of the, what I got was things were tough and, and the family was poor. Mind you, she also had like 14 siblings. Right. Yeah. That's so that's a, a, I'm sure it was tough even at the best of times with, with that sort of family situation. <laughs> okay. 14 siblings. Oh my God. Yeah. And I think there were more, but they weren't quite sure because some of them died when they were children. And it's one of those, eras where records weren't, you know, super thorough, where if you're not really a person until you make it past the age of four. Oh, wow. Okay. That's interesting. That, that sort of thing. So I think there was a few like very young child deaths and things like that. So they're not quite sure exactly how many siblings she might've had, because I think she Jeez. was like the, the second youngest or the youngest of them all. Good Lord. Yeah. <laughs> That's impressive. Uh, yeah, so I guess we'll go, you know, way segue back to uh, back to Passion <laughs> Jail. Uh, yeah, it's interesting. So a lot of this movie does take place in Alberta. Uh, you know, we, we see a, a concentrated effort of you know recruitment and and uh, not quite a draft, but obviously trying to shame young men into signing up. And even if that means lying about any illness or disability you might have, which the main young kid he does have, uh, was, is it, does he have asthma or something like that? Yeah. He had asthma. Yeah. There was a, yeah, there was a scene in it where they, they had everyone stand up and applause. Um, and then the main British asshat, I forget his name. He was a great actor. I liked his, uh, his character, but he asked all the women to take a seat and then all the elderly to take a seat. And then anyone who was too young to enlist to take a seat. And then all the rest of the eligible men, he's like, why the fuck aren't you out on the battlefield right now? You cowards pretty much like I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, shame, like pretty much shaming, you know, like if you're, if you're not out there trying to get yourself killed, what's wrong with you? you know? <clears throat> yeah. That- I'm wondering how much of that actually happened. Yeah, that was that was basically the, the the whole gist of that, and so it is definitely interesting. Where you you probably would feel a lot of societal pressure, uh, and, and it goes back to like the scene earlier where um, the young man who I probably should you know I've got the IMDb page open. I probably should know his name by this point. Oh, David is his name. Um, hmm who is, you know, wants to marry this young woman and uh, goes to basically ask her father for permission to propose. And he's like, sure, you know, are you going to fight in the war first? Which ends up, you know, we later learned that he basically tricked him to sign up so that way he would die over there. That way his daughter could marry someone better. Which is I was wondering about that, actually. Yeah, cool I was wondering. Yeah, no kidding, right? That's <laughs> that was interesting. Yeah, yeah and I'll <laughs> and then of course I don't. I'm wondering how much of the, I'm, I'm. I really would like to know more about the politics behind the social pressure of signing people up for the war. You know, <clears throat> I, I imagine I'm it not was quite clear. high. Like you know, I feel like we're so inundated with with American Vietnam movies and and stuff like that, where we can probably safely say that 
you were pretty well expected to sign up and you know the people that were drafted you were expected to to go over there and serve your country despite everything that we know you know people knew going into the damn war that it was a bogus war at best sort of thing and so i considering that world war one you know had a much better cause behind it i can't imagine what the, the societal pressure would have been like right so, I, yeah that's that's something that i i probably should have looked a little bit more into to see like what was the the enlistment records like what was the you know just the general numbers for all that sort of stuff obviously i know that like over six hundred thousand soldiers went over there and, and sixty thousand died which is kind of an insane number uh i I imagine, that especially was, if you consider Canada's population at the time. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sure that was like a not insignificant number. Well, they said it at the beginning of the movie. I believe it was. I believe they said it was eight million, which is really quite small. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm in I'm in Toronto. And that's basically the, the the Greater Toronto area, right? Southern yeah. Ontario <laughs> area, I guess, to be more specific. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I, you know. I. I I, I guess we could talk a little bit about the, that last little battle scene where I thought that was that was probably the real highlight of the film. They do a, a really great job kind of showing the intensity where once you're, you know, less than six feet away from someone, your gun is better used as a bludgeoning tool than it is to actually shoot someone. Uh, and, right. and so you really get some of the horrors of war that you, you can probably understand why someone would get diagnosed with neurasthenia. Right. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong still. The last, the last scene, maybe I don't know. Uh, the, yeah, the last scene in Passchendaele, uh, the, the 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 giant battle was was spectacular in my mind. I thought it was really really well made, best part of the whole film. And Paul Gross, after watching both of his um, the, both of the movies that I watched tonight, Hyena Road and Passchendaele, he has an affinity for blowing people up. He's just he's really good at it. Like he's like an explosion will happen and then a body, a singular body, it's only ever one body, will go spinning. Like, I mean, like just not flying away, they spin. They twirl through the air like a tornado and often land bouncing off of something every single time. And it's it's um it's amazing to watch. He's really good at it, and he does it a lot. I just <laughs> it's quite impressive. Yeah, I, I definitely that's agree. A, it almost reminds a, me. Uh, <laughs> I didn't really have any point other than that. That was it. <laughs> it. It actually almost reminded me a little bit of uh, the Mel Gibson movie Hacksaw Ridge from a couple years ago. Did you ever see that one? I never did. No. No. Okay. It's it's you know what I actually kind of compare it similarly minus you know the whole Alberta section of this movie, which is most of the movie. Um, but it's basically the story of uh, of a conscientious objector in World War II who is forced to go, uh, and so he he serves as a medic and doesn't want to carry a gun, uh, and so he sees all these horrors of war and he's just trying to save lives no matter what happened without a gun to basically protect himself. Uh, and that would be the only way that he would actually serve. And, and if anyone's seen any Mel Gibson movie, Mel Gibson loves blowing people up too and, and killing people <laughs> in, in ridiculous fashion. And it actually sort of ends in a very Jesus-y way too, um, uh, which is very Mel Gibson as well. Uh, but this, that sort of like way over the top, like, I don't know if this, the physics are real or not, but it's definitely something that's going to stick in your head uh, as far as body parts flying around. Right. He does. The, the gore in these films is 
surprising mm-hmm. <clears throat> for one. It's out of nowhere. Like the, the, the you know, these Passchendaele seems to be like a very, um, it's trying to be a romantic f- film. It's trying to be a beautiful cinematic film. It's trying to be poetic. It's trying to be, uh, and then, and then even, even the war scenes are trying to be poetic in a sense and cinematic, but then out of nowhere, it kind of jolts you out of it and just throws in this like very graphic gore. And like, I get it. It's the war that happened. Sure. But this entire time you've been telling a different story, you've been showing a different aspect of the war. Like, and it's just, it's very unsettling and takes you right out of it. And like, yeah, they can argue the whole time. Like, well, that's how the war was like, sure. Yeah. That's how the war was. I get it. But like, I don't know. It's the gore took me out of it. Honestly, the gore, I didn't, I don't think that helped anything. <clears throat> I feel like we can, opinion. we can, kind of wrap up on this if, if we have any last thoughts but I think one of the main criticisms and I don't know if it, it sort of sounds like it's the same for you about this movie is that it's kind of tonally inconsistent at times where it sort of jumps from genre to genre and doesn't really know what it's trying to be while trying to be multiple things at the same time even when it doesn't yeah. know what it wants to be yeah it's not a war film uh, for one thing it's yeah no, I'd say you you hit it right on the head honestly that makes that's the, the probably the best way to, to sum that up mm-hmm. and real briefly before we leave Passchendaele can I forget the guy's name I've seen him in other stuff the one-armed man can we talk about that prosthetic his his buddy in the town who only oh, had one arm yeah 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 yeah, yeah. so so intensely fake looking just like it was amazingly bad like poorly done mm-hmm. it was it was like just glaringly bad <laughs> like you could tell his his arm was all stuffed up and like it was just am i the only one who noticed that did you see that too was this yeah i, I think like i this? really noticed it the first time that we meet him in the bar or something like that where he he stood up from the table or something like that and i'm like Oh, he looks like he's got like a, a scarecrow shirt on, where it's just stuffed with hay or something like that, because it was it was just like, it was so rigid. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. It's exactly what he looked like. Yeah, and, and I don't know if if I I just accepted it or maybe it was just like that one day it was the worst like the first costume fitting and they later decided, no, we can do better than this. But I definitely didn't notice it later on. So I don't know if that was just like a me thing where I was like, Oh yeah, this is, this is how this guy looks with his ridiculous fake arm. Um, or, or did it actually get better later on? So is how, how did you feel about that? I, I, I did see it later on. Uh, it did not get better. Okay. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty bad. So it was still uh, scary yeah, the whole way through. It was, yeah, definitely scarecrow the whole way through. And is it me or Paul Gross seems to like to shock people with, um, well, just he tries shock value. He uses a lot of shock value. Like, you know, uh, the, the rat crawling out of the guy's, the dead corpse's mouth. Um, and then in Hyena Road where a corpse that he just shot in the head gets pushed back on him and his arm goes straight through the back of his skull through the guy's mouth. Like, this is unnecessary but he's, he does shit like this. I feel like for, I don't even know why he does shit like this. Shits and giggles, <laughs> right? There's, yeah. there's shock. The armless man, uh, the one-armed man getting into a fight by shoving the stump of his arm into the mouth of one of the guys in the bar. Just like, I feel like this is shock value for shock value's sake. You know, it doesn't really add anything to the character development, to the, like, to, to the plot, to the story or anything like that. And it's very out of place for the genre of these films that he's creating. Yeah, 
That's why I sort of compare it a little bit to to Mel Gibson's films where he very much is like that as well, where he'll just kind of throw in something to shock you just for the sake of shocking you. Like right. um, an, another movie I, I sort of think about is uh, 1917 that came out last year. Did you see that one? Lo- loved it. Okay, loved so it. Did I. it was amazing. And so I would compare it not similarly, but there's, the, there's a scene in that early on where they're in the underground tunnels or whatever it is. And then all of a sudden some rats come out and it freaks you out, but it's not done to shock you because it very clearly has a uh, plot element behind it that causes them to, to trip some wires that explodes, whatever the, this bunker that they're in. Right. So it all makes sense. There's a reason behind, you know, being scared by that. Whereas this, like you said, when you see the rat come out of the guy's mouth, it really freaks you out, but there's no reason behind it other than to be like, yeah, war is dirty and gross. Right. Yeah. That's pretty much it. Yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. And again, like as you mentioned before, it seemed like he didn't know what kind of genre he wanted this movie to be. If it was a growth, this is a gross and dirty war movie and that's the genre. And we're going to really push that from beginning to end. Then that sort of stuff would fit pretty well, you know, but it, it's mixing genres is tough and it can take you out if you if you spend a half an hour building a certain sort of feeling and then and then dive in a completely opposite direction it can kind of ruin things yeah you know that's- so it's sort of like you know if you want to go the you know the the very gory way the the saving private ryan route where war is intense war is hell where you're going to see everything or you can go sort mm-hmm. of like the pearl harbor movie route where it's like it's so romanticized and it's about the relationships between you know these two pilots and the women that they love and this sort of thing you can go that route but then when you're trying to do both at the same time and it's a lot of yeah it's a lot i never of saw pearl harbor and, and eating it too I never saw Pearl Harbor. I was told many times not to see Pearl Harbor, so <laughs> I'm going to continue not seeing Pearl Harbor. That, that's fine. Michael Bay. I'm going to admit that I have not seen it either. I'm just aware of it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you, okay. you caught me in my shall lie. We, shall we talk about Hyena Road? Yeah, so we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about Hyena Road. I'm building a road, gentlemen. I'm building a road, and it is going like a dagger into the heart of the enemy. But I've lost 36 civilians in the last four months. And this has got to stop. I'm your partner in peace. This is the birthplace of the Taliban. 54,000 square kilometers of insurgency, tribal rivalry, and blood feuds. I need eyes on that road. There's going to be fireworks. This is going to get personal. I'm here, aren't I? (laughs) All right, so the next movie we're going to talk about is Hyena Road, which once, as I said earlier, is also directed by Paul Gross. It tells the story of three different men, three different worlds, three different wars, all stand at the intersection of modern warfare, a murky world of fluid morality where all is not as it seems. It, uh, I think off the top, it sort of reminded me, you know, I... I said Passchendaele was sort of Canada's answer to Saving Private Ryan. I feel like Hyena Road was Canada's answer to um, The Hurt Locker, where it was, yes. you know, yeah. it was supposed to be this uh, ambiguousness where sometimes you have to be the bad guy to be the good guy, and you don't really know who the enemy is and who can you trust and all that sort of stuff. So it definitely had a lot of Hurt Locker vibes for me. Overall, as far as really the movie goes, I did enjoy Hyena Road much more than I enjoyed Passchendaele. As did I. As did I. Uh, from two different perspectives, though, like uh, cinematically speaking, it's a much better f- movie in general, just mm-hmm. as 
as a movie that was created. Um, <clears throat> that being said, um, I found it difficult to follow a lot of the times. Um, I'm just not really into that sort of war drama. It's not something that I would naturally be gravitated, gravitate towards. So for someone who is not already naturally gravitating towards that sort of um, information, that sort of those sort of stories, um, I found it wasn't very easy to digest. Uh, I felt like this sort of story is for people who already follow these sorts of stories. Um, and it was, there were some weird moments too, where, um, there would be Afghanis speaking in a foreign language and, and, and I was watching it on a, and I like, I didn't have any subtitles and I'm like, Oh, this is probably subtitles. And I, I searched and I found, Oh, this is on Netflix. And I went down Netflix and I turned on subtitles and it, all it said was speaking in a foreign language. <laughs> and it'd be weird because they'd be doing this for like 60 minutes, the 60 seconds, like a full minute of people talking in another language. And you have no idea what they're saying or why that scene even exists. It's weird, man. And there's a few of them. It's very, very strange. Yeah, it, it, it was definitely odd. Uh, I This is a sort of movie where every once in a while I'll come across a movie where in the moment you're like, I'm not quite sure exactly what's going on. And then by like a scene or two later, you kind of understand what happened before because they they kind of recap it by being like, hey, I'm going to fill you in on what you missed. Uh, And so they kind of did that. So like, I I agree with you. There were moments where I was like, oh, I'm not quite sure exactly what the plan is here. But then later on, you know, 10, 15 minutes later, you're like, all right, I'm on board. I'm with you again. Keep going. Yeah, that's pretty much how I was watching this movie. It was very confusing, intermittently confusing. And like everything had to be explained. I'm glad they explained it because I wouldn't have been able to follow it. Otherwise I still don't really fully understand what happened at the end. I got to admit, I don't really, I don't really get it. (laughs) And I was trying to follow it. I really was, but maybe you can help me. So, so the ghost who, who took out a, the guy's B.D. King's son's severed head out of a sack and threw it at his feet. He wanted to die with honor. And that's why Paul Gross's character was screaming at the sniper. Don't kill B.D. King because we want B.D. King to kill the ghost, to give him an honorable death, I guess. And then that didn't happen. They shot him anyway. And then the ghost just shows up when all of a the sudden these insurgents show up out of nowhere for no reason. For no reason, just <laughs> I guess, and then and then the guy asks, "Please kill us, kill." Like he he asked and overrode. He's like, "No, I want you to send the bombs. Kill me." Yes, no, I I'm aware that I'm in love and have a child on the way, but I want you to kill me now. And everyone's okay with this, like except for the woman. The woman's the only one who's not okay with this. Everyone's like, "Yep, yeah, well, he's got to die. He's got to die." Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, there you go. I just <laughs> it was like, what happened? I can you explain the ending to me? I don't. I do not understand. No, Other than I, like, oh, we can't let them take us alive. They talked about that earlier. If we take us alive, they'll do unspeakable things. What things? We don't speak of them. I, <laughs> I, I think you you described the ending as best as I could. Um, yeah, I, I you know they they talk about it a lot where there there's an honor code uh, for the for this group of people, and and I wish I'd I'd written down what they were calling it because. Apparently, you know, that was fairly accurate as far as what they were trying to, the, the actual ways that they were saying. So they Sorry, had, what, what part were you, what, 
what part are you referring to? Just in general, throughout the the movie, they they talk about how there's an honor code. There is the there's the one guy who's like their their go between. I can't remember his name right now. Who like they gave the guy him- who would like wash the windows and wash the chairs and yes, and I think his name was like like cleaner or something like that. Clean. That's funny. That's <laughs> yeah, Haji Baba, the it. cleaner. That's his name. Uh, according to IMDb. Uh, yeah, he, he, you know, several times talked about how there, there is a code, um, for, for different Afghan warriors. And by all accounts, that is very accurate as well, as far as, you know, wanting to die nobly and things you're willing to do basically like, uh, because he had saved, uh, he had saved the ghost's life earlier. The ghost was now indebted to them sort of thing. And then when it was time for him to die, it was, the ghost time to die and they didn't let him die that way. As far as I understand, that's what, what they were doing. So once again, this is, you know, Paul gross trying to, uh, put some actual information in it that maybe us as an audience aren't really aware of and maybe totally getting, but yeah, right. They go, yeah, I didn't get it either. Right. Like it's, he, but again, once again, it's something that was explained to us. After the fact, mm-hmm. he he's like he had to die with honor. You you took it away. He's got nothing now. I'm like, really? This is like, it's so weird to follow, man. <laughs> How uh... I would I would one small thing before I forget. David Warnsby, the editor of Hyena Road. David, if you're listening to this podcast, I want to let you know I spotted it. I might be the only one, but I spotted it. There was a guy who was shot at the very beginning of the film, and they took that exact same footage, and they had a guy be shot at the end of the film. It was the same dude. Same dude, same shot, same blood, exact same shot. And I got it, David. (laughs) Shame on you, David Warnsby. (laughs) You're going to have to give me some timestamps later, and and I'm going to have to look this up. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, so I'm, uh, I'm curious, this, this is, you know, two movies where very overtly, uh, Paul Gross is inserting a romantic subplot and I don't know how well it worked in Passchendaele. It sort of worked when they were sort of all in on the romantic drama stuff, but less so when they were trying to meld it with the actual battle stuff here, right. it seemed a little more naturalistic, I guess. Totally. But after having watched after having just watched Passchendaele, I knew how this movie was. I knew how Hyena Road was going to end. After the guys, after the guy's girlfriend gets pregnant, I'm like, "Oh, you're going to go off to die now." Yeah, like, that's just that's what Paul Gross does, he, <laughs> right? He gets you. He gets a, a main character engrossed in a romantic entanglement and then kills them. <laughs> just. I knew he was going to die. The moment she was pregnant, I knew he was going to die. It's funny. I, I, I watched <laughs> yeah. this one with my wife, and, and that's what she said. She's like, oh, he's not making it to the end. <laughs> right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But overall, I do think the actual writing mechanics worked a lot better as far as inserting a romantic subplot. Oh my god, a thousand times, mm-hmm. way way better. Oh yeah, Especially the fact that it wasn't. Had a main... lot, I think she had a lot better agency too. Yeah, I mean they they you know it wasn't the main plot of the story. Mm-hmm. You know it was more realistic as a side note, which were like it, it was you know their love was taboo because it wasn't allowed on the base and they, their careers are in danger. And that was a kind of nice little subplot that that anyone could really like. They didn't need it. It was a war movie, but like this kind of allowed us you know to to. 
view them as what's the word I'm looking for? Help me out here. Where? Uh, oh my god, I'm having a huge brain fart right now. I'm so sorry. To relate to them more. There you go, Jesse. That's the words I'm looking for. Thank you. <laughs> I, 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 I'm. It sounds like I'm shitting on Higher Road. I quite liked the film. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was. I thought it was quite a quite a good film. Uh, the writing was excellent. The acting was way better than Passchendaele. Um, the cinematography was was great. It was run and gun and nitty gritty, and uh, I, I liked that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, no, overall I thought it was much much better film. I'm, we're, I think I'm just nitpicking now for the sake of nitpicking. <laughs> I, and, and, you know, you talk about the acting, and I think that's true because you look in Passchendaele, and outside of of Paul Gross, a lot of the the rest of the cast aren't really that notable. You know, there's there's the one major, his boss, who is like the, the big dick to him the whole time. I thought he was excellent in his role, but other than that, me no as well. One really, no one really stood out. Whereas in Hyena Road. A lot of the cast is a lot more well known. You know, if you have Ross of Sutherland, who's Donald Sutherland's son and Kiefer's half brother, who mostly does Canadian I did not stuff. know that. That's cool. Yeah, it looks nothing like him, um, but uh, but is is quite an accomplished Canadian actor and does a very serviceable 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 job in this movie. And then uh, Alan Hawko, who was the lead in that. Um, uh, Republic of Doyle for like five years, whatever, how long that show was on for. Uh, wow. So, so he's been around. And then of course, like uh, you, you go through the cast and most of the supporting actors are, are a little bit w- more well known. The one performance I think didn't, that didn't work for me was, was Clark Johnson who plays the general who I most know him as uh, one of the, the actors in season five of the wire. Uh, I don't know if you ever watched that, but he, he's in the, season where it's about the the newspaper and so he works as a reporter he does an excellent job in that so now that's what i have i haven't seen the wire i've been i've been told to watch it though very very excellent show uh, i will add to the the list of people telling you that you'll probably that you should watch it and uh, i don't know if you ever will get around to it because it's it's quite heavy and and very hard to follow at times (laughs) oh (laughs) okay well that's really selling it (laughs) (laughs) but it's so worth it the payoff is so worth it um but yeah i I thought his character was just a way too over the top for this movie which character was he was the general so he would come in like every 45 minutes or so and just like be like what the fuck is going on here i don't fucking do that and then he'd leave oh that guy oh sorry i thought i was confusing the with passiondale the british general no okay yeah, yeah, no, the, the, the really angry man, yeah. Yes. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. So his was the performance, you... the only performance that didn't really work for me, just because it felt out of place. Fair enough. Yeah, yeah, I'll give you that. And it's only because it was, uh, yeah, exacerbative. Mm-hmm. Exacerbative? Is that, a, is that a word? I'm going to say it's a word. <laughs> uh, no, I thought the acting was was excellent. Um, I was, uh, by everybody, everyone, almost everyone, yeah, I, I would mm-hmm. say. It was, it was very well cast. I was quite impressed with Paul Gross's ability to make Alberta look like Afghanistan. Quite impressive, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. It wasn't even Alberta. Sorry, it was Manitoba. Yeah, Manitoba, yeah. I think they did some uh, shooting in in Jordan, I think it was. But I'm I'm sure that was more for like the the aerial um, – shoot, what's the the word? The the opening shots. um, Right. I'm I'm blanking. The establish- establishing shots. shots. Thank you. Yes, the the establishing shots where you'd be like where it would like show the whole desert basically, but everything else, right. all the the base stuff that was all Manitoba. Amazing. Mm-hmm. 
and Reese and I uh, are trying to trying to get a show made in uh, in Manitoba, or at least about Manitoba. So this is uh, <laughs> this is this is coincidence for for us. Um, Manitoba Knights. We want to make a, a, a cop show, but uh, <laughs> is that the one about the UFO it. landing? I, I feel like I listened to your, that episode of your show. No, that's a totally different no? uh, television. We've got thirty-five different television shows that we want to make. <laughs> I, I, I feel like yeah, it's it's a it's a different TV show in a, in a different merchandise item of, of every show you guys have. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, <laughs> pretty much. No, I thought they they they. I, I realized they used a lot of B-roll of of actual of Jordan or in Afghanistan, and um, but it was very saturated, it's oversaturated almost, and I'm not really sure why they did that. I'm guessing you know just highlighting the yellows of the desert. It's one of those things where like I, I see a bunch of like memes where you know anytime Mexico is shown in an American movie or TV show, everything is super saturated and yellow when in reality it doesn't right. look anything like that. So I think it's that's just the sort of look they were going for. Right. Now the color is the color was done very, very well in this film. Uh the day for night shots were spectacularly made as mm-hmm. uh, done, which is not something you ever, ever say about day for night shots. I, <laughs> I was quite impressed, I gotta say. Yeah, you know, overall this a- this really was a huge step up in production value. You know, this is more than a decade later, and right. the, the he didn't do any other films in between that he directed. So I don't know what he did that he learned so many lessons. <laughs> I don't know. I wonder what the budget is between them. Yeah, I I, I don't know either. I I do remember at the time, like I I just remember Passchendaele being so heavily promoted. Anytime you go to the movie theater at the time for like a year in advance, and you know you turn on CBC or whatever, they always seem to be promoting. I'm pretty sure at the time it was the most expensive Canadian movie ever made. That sounds about right. Mm-hmm. Where like it's it's one of those things where war movies just for some reason always cost so much more because the amount of like uh you know you have to rent tanks and you know rent planes for your background shots and you know if you're firing ammunition you're still firing real guns even if you know they're they're blank bullets because you've got to see like the the casing pop out of the gun and stuff like that so they're they're really shooting these guns those are real ammunition they just don't have uh tips on the end of it basically uh so. Fast. Yeah, so I did not. Yeah, when in, in movies, like unless it's like a terrible CGI where you can tell if the gun is, you know, not really being shot, a, a real how do I wear this uh, the simplest way? Basically, if if a gun is being shot, that is a real gun. They they treat it as real live ammo. The difference is, uh, if you see a bullet, you know, there's a little rounded knob at the end of it. That's what you know gets fired off and into the target basically that isn't there uh so there's still gunpowder in the bullet there's still the casing and all that sort of stuff and the the shell casing still has to eject from the gun so it is considered live ammunition that's uh amazing that's how brandon lee died on uh, on the set of the crow where i'm aware yeah yeah where the gun jammed that was that was slightly different where uh the shell casing didn't eject and then they reshot the scene and shot it again so i think it was called like a, a double fire or something like that so basically the shell casing in front acted as a bullet right and that's what killed him. yeah no i i, I, re- I remember that story it was as horrifying as it was mm-hmm. uh I, I discovered how much the movies cost. Um, so 
Passchendaele cost 20 million US dollars. I don't know why it said US, but uh, 20 million US dollars, which is a huge amount of money for a Canadian film. Mm-hmm. Just massive. And then Hyena Road cost uh, $12.5 million, which again is, is massive for mm-hmm. a Canadian movie. And I'm almost wondering if the smaller budget for Hyena Road um, helped with the creativity. Like helped. Does, does that make sense? Like oh, it's absolutely. The, yeah. The more, yeah. You know, if you if you feel like you've got all the money in the world to make your movie, um, it 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 you become less creative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Things that's uh, yeah. Smaller budgets help. Uh, oh my God, I'm not wording at all. My I can't use my words today. <laughs> do you know what I'm trying to say? I do. Yes, and and I and I agree with you because more often than not, you you look at directors who have had limitations imposed on, upon them, whether it's by their studios or depending on the era of when the movie is made, different societal restrictions, mm-hmm. things like that. And more often than not, they they rise to the occasion. You know, I think the best example is someone like Alfred Hitchcock who couldn't show the amount of you know violence and, and gore and sex that he probably would have loved to include in his movies but because he couldn't it was more left up to the viewer's imagination to sort of fill in the blanks and he did it so expertly and i think this is sort of the same thing you know you tell me that passionel costs 20 million us to make and the fact that it doesn't contain a single a-list star where was all that money going to because more often than not like you you look at something like a, a marvel movie and you're like oh yeah i understand why the avengers cost 300 million to make this the cast alone probably cost them 100 million just to to film it well, I mean, it, 20 million seems about right for Passchendaele, honestly. It was, a lot of it was taking place outside. There was a lot of locations. The fact that it was a period piece itself would have cost so much money, amount of money. And the war scenes, um, I mean, they had to create these giant sound stages uh, where then they also had to control the weather. Um, so the fact that they did it for 20 million only 20 million was actually quite imp- impressive. <laughs> like you couldn't, you couldn't get uh, a Hollywood movie with the same sort of um, elements in it for, for 20 million or less. Like it just, so it's actually kind of impressive to me that it cost as little as 20 million. Yeah. But as, as even as bad as it was. <laughs> <laughs> and there's, and there's, and there's also of course a point where too little money would definitely hinder you. Like if, if I was to say, Hey Jesse, here's $500,000 to go make a movie. You would turn to me and say that wouldn't cover the cost to rent the camera. I mean, <laughs> you could definitely make a movie for half a million you, dollars. You can, but, uh, but like if, if you're wanting to make it as professional as possible, like the, you know, the actual camera rental equipment and the different lenses and, and the processing just for that aspect of the movie is probably going to run you most, if not all of that budget before you even get to anything else that you might need to pay for. I mean, in this, in this particular, it's like, I see where you're going with that. And, and the essence of what you're, you're arguing is true. And that particular example is not accurate at all, but, but um, yes, <laughs> if, if you, depending on the style of movie you're making too, if you want it to be very cinematic in nature, so you're going to want to have, you know, very expensive lenses. You want to have dollies, you want to have jib arms, you're going to want to have like assistant camera operators and things of that nature. Then sure, that's going to run you quite a large. And plus you're going to want to have a lot of cinematic lighting and stuff like that. But if you want to do more gritty, like hyena road was, you know, 
a couple, a few cameramen who would punch in and zoom in and make it seem more realistic. They didn't need as, as expensive lenses. They didn't need as ex, like as elaborate lighting setups or jib arms or dollings running like for the majority of the footage and allowed them to do it cheaper. In fact, I, I knew a film that was shot in the same way. It, it uh, played at the, I think it was the Sedona film festival or not, not Sedona. It was at the, I forget which film festival it was. It was quite well made, though, and it was it was just it was same style as, as Hyena Road, where basically two or three cameras shooting over people's shoulders as they had conversations, and they would punch in and they'd zoom in and stuff like that. And it was very found footage esque, but where people didn't acknowledge the fact that the cameras were there. Mm. It's the middle of the ground sort of style of shooting, which is becoming more and more popular over the past decade. Uh, <clears throat> And I believe that month that movie was shot for five hundred dollars. <laughs> Whoa, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, everyone did it for free. Everyone yeah. volunteered their time. I mean, they already had the equipment on hand. It's not like they bought fresh cameras for the shoot or anything like that, right? But like, yeah, it, it essentially like you couldn't shoot Passchendaele for half a million dollars, no. even if you tried. But you could shoot a run and gun found footage horror movie for half a million dollars. It depends on what you're trying to make, essentially. Yeah, yeah. The difference <laughs> between the Blair Witch Project versus, you know, something different is, is obviously exactly. stark. Yeah, sorry for going down that I, 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 uh, that rambling road, no, that rant. <laughs> that, that is fine. Uh, so I guess we could talk a little bit maybe about as far as the the, the realness as, as this movie sort of contained. You know, I... I obviously am much more familiar with this era because I, I lived through it. I was, you know, a teenager basically at this point in the, in the early 2010s. Uh, but I do remember, you know, Canada going over to Afghanistan and choosing not to follow the U S into Iraq. And I know that was a, a pretty big deal to the Americans that we were supposed to be their closest ally and we're not following them into Iraq, but we are going over to Afghanistan where there seemed to be an actual threat going on. So, and I guess my sort of perception of we were portrayed as basically UN light where we would go in there. We are peacekeepers. <laughs> uh, yes, we would engage in combat, but at the same time, our, we weren't there to, you know, overthrow the government. Right. And I mean, th I think they kind of hinted at stuff like that in the movie in Hyena Road where they weren't allowed engaging unless they saw an imminent violent threat in front of them. Like they couldn't decide people's fates for them in their country. The, uh, the only rule that they could sort of act on is if they saw an imminent danger from a, a violent weapon, like a gun, essentially, then they could choose to act uh, in the moment. But other than that, if like when, when the children were kidnapped, but not at gunpoint legally, they weren't allowed doing anything. I'm like, that's fascinating. I wish they had talked a little bit more about like given some more political backstory as to why that is. They kind of brushed over it real quickly. I know they had a small conversation afterwards, but they didn't really, they're just like, Oh, there's bigger pictures at work here. You don't understand. Like that's kind of like, all they gave us <laughs> it, that that but. whole sequence is probably why i appreciated this movie more because it gave a whole bunch of gray era area ambiguity to who these people are and what their actual mission was right <clears throat> so yeah I, exactly. I appreciated Which that yeah i appreciated it too honestly i did i, I some gritty realism mm -hmm. you know and if that's and the fact that Paul Gross is like, I don't know what war I'm, I'm, <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing here anymore. It's just like a 3D game of chess for me. Ah, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, <laughs> I don't know, that's going to win you any medals, but uh, 
Anyway, that's that's all. That's all. That's all. Uh, yeah, and I think you know, doing a little bit of research, I'll sort of kind kind of conclude with this point: is it was fairly accurate historically, but the difference being, uh, you know, this focuses on an English language unit, English language unit, but in reality, this group of people who were building and protecting this highway in the middle of the desert was actually a French language uh, unit, uh, the Royal Twenty Second Regiment, uh, which was formed in 1869, and instead they basically just transitioned it over to Princess Patricia's Canadian Light Infantry, which is uh, based in Western Canada. Other than changing the name, they basically kept most of the actual job and work that they were doing on this Royal 22nd Regiment, which their nickname was the Vandus, because in French it is Vandus 22nd. Oh, right. Yeah, that's clever. Okay. Mm-hmm. Prince, Princess Patricia? Yes. What's 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 the story there? Uh, I believe she was the daughter of a governor general. And she was a princess? I guess so. Uh, Being the daughter of a governor general automatically makes her princess? I, I don't I know. I do not um, believe I, so. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I will quickly pull this up and, uh, and be able to accurately say it. Um, mm, is named for Princess Patricia of Connaught, daughter of the then Governor General in Canada. Uh, from 1914 was when this battalion was named. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. Cool. Yeah. So the act, what happened in the movie were those like historically accurate things that occurred, or is this how much of the story was fiction? And I'm know. not that. totally sure on, other than the fact that. Uh, that they were a group that built this highway and were their main job was uh, dismantling improvised explosive devices. So basically the, the plot of the Hurt Locker. Right, right. Yeah. Thus Canada's response to the Hurt Locker, right? <laughs> I, I think that's more <laughs> me saying that after watching and being like, yeah, this feels a lot like the Hurt Locker. I'd say it's an accurate description. Yeah, yeah, or depiction. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I quite liked it. Um, yeah, and apparently the this group, uh, the Royal Twenty Second Regiment, uh, was involved in a lot of close combat with the Taliban and uh, helped set up a lot of the police forces in Afghanistan and like were involved in training them to basically take over and uh, and be able to protect their own people and land basically. Oh wow! Yeah, oh, cool. So that would have been I don't know, and maybe in my opinion that might have been a, a bit a better of a story to maybe tell than this one where I'm not quite sure if it's, if it's real or not, where I I feel like there's definitely some, some fictionalization going on. Yeah. I feel like if it was as brutal as if what happened was, was factually accurate and then we probably would have heard more about it in the news, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah, so, so I think that, uh, that's a good place to sort of wrap it up. Uh, overall, you know, I think it's, it's interesting, you know, we're, we live in a country that I feel doesn't always do a good enough job educating, whether it's students or or people about its history at times, as I'm sure you're, you're probably well aware of that by, by this point. Oh yeah. (laughs) Um, and, and it was an interesting sort of look of, you know, one person's fascination with, with 
Canadian War and, and his interpretations of that, whether they were always on the right track or not. <laughs> right. No, I appreciated the films. I even appreciated Passchendaele as bad as it was. <laughs> I can, you know, I'm 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 happy for the stories that that I was I was uh, some of the information at least I learned. I walked away having learned stuff. So that's uh, that's all I'll take from that. <laughs> well, excellent, Jesse. Thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, it was a real pleasure. If people want to find out more about you or, or check out your show, what's the best place to do that? Uh, yeah, thank you again, Dakota, for having me on your show. Uh, I, had a, I had a wonderful time. Sorry for my ranting. My my brain's in a weird spot today, but uh, I hope I was uh, a good enough guest for your 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 show and your audience. Uh, if people would like to find me elsewhere, I have a little podcast with my co-host and friend Reese Waters, and the name of that show is Canadian Politics Is boring where reese a welsh immigrant tries to teach me an ignorant canadian citizen um all about canadian politics and canadian history and the fact that it is far more entertaining than and interesting than i give credit for that's our show canadian politics is boring go check it out thanks (laughs) so on the very last episode do you have to admit that canadian politics is not boring is that how that works yeah that's and then i get a cookie (laughs) (laughs) Uh, once again Jesse thank you so much for joining me today no thank you thank you it was a lot of fun if you have seen either of these films or any other Canadian war films uh, let us know what you think by sending an email to contrazoompod at gmail.com and uh, and I can read your response on the air if you send one in Uh, you can also follow the show on Instagram Twitter and Facebook at contrazoompod today's show is presented by Aesthetic Magazine Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you could rate and review the show wherever you listen to podcasts, it will be a huge help for us to be able to grow and find new listeners. Thanks for listening.